So James read Psalm 46 to us. I won't uh, read the entire thing again, but we're going to spend the first few minutes um, looking at some specifics from that psalm uh, in just a moment. I don't know if it's an age thing or if I'm just boring, but I've come to enjoy quietness. Uh, no TV, no music, no audiobooks. Um, just having silence. And sometimes I walk with my earbuds in, sometimes I walk without them, but um, I'm coming to appreciate uh, silence more because it gives me time to process uh, what's going on, what's about to happen, what's coming down the road. Um, you know, it, I think it's a healthy thing, too. Um, being alone with your thoughts and sorting out your emotions were your emotions correct, sorting out your reactions, were your reactions the right things, um, training your emotions, training your reactions to things. The next time this happens, I'm going to feel differently. I'm going to act differently about it. Um, I think that's a good thing. You know, but there's a, I think there's a quietness and a stillness that goes beyond physical quiet. Um, you know, there can be no noise going on, but a person may not be quiet inside, still in, in, in their spirit. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's pointed out in Psalm 46. It's, it's kind of a fascinating psalm. It's all in the third person talking about God until you get to verse 10. In verse 10, it becomes first person. And it's a really strong first person in verse 10. Um, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And even verse 11 switches back to third person. Um, telling us about God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our so most of the psalm is all telling us about God or, or speaking truths or saying things that we can do with respect to God until you get to verse 10. And that's, I, I guess you could say, that's kind of the theme I want to have for uh, a short lesson this morning is um, being still and not merely just being physically still, but stilling ourselves in spirit and at the same time knowing that He is God. And what that means. How do we do that? Because it doesn't just mean I'm sort of in some mindless, empty-headed trance, right? There's something going on inside, right? But I'm still. And I'm quiet. You know, that word still, when I looked it up, I was, I was really fascinated that the original Hebrew word is used in lots of different ways in the King James. I mean, it's translated in lots of different ways in the King James. Sometimes, it, you know, the... The verb form of the word is used, other times the noun or the or adjective, but some other ways it's used, feeble. Um, the verb form is weaken. Right? Be weakened, maybe you could think of it, and know that I am God. Be feeble and know that I am God. Alone. Be alone and know that I am God. Slack. That's a word we don't use real often, but, you know, if you've ever heard the term slack-jawed, right? It's, 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 their jaw is loose, it's relaxed. It's, you know, your arms are slack. 
They're just sort of dangling, right? Be slack. Be relaxed. And know that I am God. Um, another verb form is just cease. Stop. And I think that would intend to be all-encompassing. Just stop. And know that I am God. Um, you know, if you take all those words together kind of as this concept, you get this picture. If you thought about it physically, if someone in a recliner or, or lying down, right, and they're just still physically, their arms are loose, their hands aren't clenched, they're just at ease. Um, and perhaps even in their mind cultivating this sense of, like, weakness or feebleness, right, just making sure there are no muscles that are tense. I was in some gym class or something, I don't know, we were, it was either before or after a workout, one of the things they had everyone do was, was lie down, and they said, all right, concentrate on your toes, and make sure your toes are relaxed. Now concentrate on the arch of your foot, and make sure there's no muscle in the arch of your foot that's tense. And they just sort of worked up, now, now think about your calves, make sure your calves are loose. And they said, now think about the ends of your fingers and your arms. And they just had you sort of concentrate on all these muscle groups and say, make sure that that muscle is not contracted. Right? And so you work your way all the way up, and the whole point is that your body is, is limp. Right? You're, not, you're not holding yourself in some kind of position, but everything's relaxed. And that's the physical manifestation of how we might, how we might think about it. And that's, that's fine. That, that might even play a role in this being still, right? Because if you're physically tense, that can manifest itself into spiritual tension, but that's kind of a physical state, but I think God is encouraging us to take this kind of attitude spiritually, and I think what that means is have that sort of attitude toward Him. And because it doesn't really make sense. How do I loosen my spiritual muscles? I mean, you don't have spiritual muscles. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Um, so when he says, be still and know that I am God, I think he's, he's, he's saying, have that sensation of feebleness or weakness with respect to him. See yourself before him as he sees you. Weak. Frail. Confused, maybe, right? Um, not in turmoil confused, but in the sense that God knows and I don't. You see, it, it's a comparative thing. It's not that you are a weak person or that you are not able to stand up because, right, as Christians we know we're given that strength. But in comparison to God, well, we can't even compare, really. And so I think that's why he ties this together in verse 10. Be, don't just be still, but be still and know that I am God. So he brings those ideas together. Let's look back in, in Psalm 46 and look at some of the ways that, not just verse 10, but some of the other verses would lead you to that, right? Um... Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. We don't use the word refuge very much. 
today. Um, because we're all either in our car or in some other structure all the time. We're not out in the open field and running from hailstones and running from bands of invaders. You know, we're in a peaceful nation. But refuge had a real meaning um, for Israel pretty much throughout their history. Maybe under Solomon it, it wouldn't have meant a whole lot because they had a lot of peace during Solomon's time. But refuge is somewhere you run to when you're in danger. And again, we're, we're trying to think about this spiritually, right? When we're facing temptation, do you feel like you're on your own? Or do you run somewhere? Run to, run to a refuge, a protection. Um, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That's being still and knowing that He is God, is not having fear. Knowing that He's right there. And there's nothing that can overcome Him, right? Uh, further down, talking about the river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. God is actively helping. I mean, when you think of a refuge, you think of a cave or some shelter that you, you run to, and yeah, that's fine as long as you're there with it, but if somebody comes in the back door or whatever, right, that refuge all of a sudden isn't helping you anymore. This is God actively helping. Right? It's like a a shelter that as soon as you run to it, it covers you in the process of you running to it. You know what I'm saying? A shelter that reaches out and says, all right, you need protection, Come, I'm protecting you. Right? There's, he's not just passive. Like, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch you trip and fall all the way till you get to me. Right? I hope you get to me before you get killed. That's not the kind of refuge that God is. He's active refuge. Um, and further down around verse 7 or 8 come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth he makes war cease to the end of the earth he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two he burns the chariot with fire verse 9 he's powerful enough not just to prevent the arrows from hitting you, but to go break the bow of the enemy. Not just to, you know, put bumps in the road for the chariot, but actually burn the chariots with fire. They don't exist anymore. These are things that would inspire us to be still, right? Be quiet in our spirit before him, because we can't do these things. We need refuge. And we can't make war cease from the, to the ends of the earth. And we can't break bows and burn the chariots. We can't provide help whenever help is needed. But he, actually he can. Every time help is needed, he's capable of completely and sufficiently aiding in that need. We're not. And so these, these ideas around verse 10... I think, give us some, something to hold on to, something concrete to think about. What does it mean to be still? 
and to see ourselves as weak before Him, not for the purpose of trying to weaken ourselves spiritually in the world, but for the purpose of trusting in Him and knowing that He's God and that His promises don't fail. There are there are other ways that uh, God is portrayed as being powerful. Now. You know, commonly in the Old Testament, it was things like this, right? It was, he leads us into battle and he conquers our enemies, or he protects us from our enemies. He's a refuge. And um, many times it's, there, there are these physical images because that's how he manifested himself to them so they would understand. Right? Even when they were entering Canaan, it says God didn't drive them all out immediately because he wanted to teach them war. Well, it's not that they didn't. They needed to help him in war, but it's so that they would understood, understand that the battle is not always to the strongest or the most numerous. He was teaching them. He was teaching them something about himself. Let's look at one more passage in the Old Testament, and then we'll go to the New Testament. And as we're reading these passages, I want you to sort of think about in your mind what does it mean to know that he is God for you. So let's look in Isaiah chapter 40. I was telling Chuck this morning how much John 17 is one of my favorite chapters. Isaiah 40 fights with John 17 in my head for the top spot. Um... Maybe the more mature I become, all chapters will have that same fight. But right now it's Isaiah 40 and John 17. Beginning in verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or has, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known... Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing, he makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable, he gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's another <coughs> picture, if you would, of what it means for him to be God. He's, he's bigger than we can comprehend. He's done more than we can comprehend. And it's all at His will. His capability is beyond what we can comprehend. This is this, if I could wrap this up in one, one word, this is like the size of God. Right? I mean, in every way, size in power, size in reach, size scope, He's just, He's infinite. In size, and if we are, would just be still and picture ourselves before Him, not that we can really grasp what something infinite is, but in trying, we get a, a greater appreciation of how small we are before Him. Let's look in the New Testament now. There are more. There are more Old Testament passages. If you guys want to look at something similar, read Job thirty-eight through forty-one, when God answers Job and and describes Himself there, uh, or Psalm eight. There are lots of Psalms that talk about God being great. Let's look in Ephesians though, Ephesians chapter one. So we kind of have this picture of the size of God, like, you know, again, not, I, I think of it maybe physically, but it's not even physically, but it's manifested in the world around us, right? And especially when you go look in Job, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? How can you make the deer give birth in the field? Do you provide the food and the water for all of these animals, right? That's kind of the physical manifestation, but... You know, in Ephesians, we have kind of a similar picture on the spiritual side. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Again, think about being still in your spirit 
and knowing that this is the God that you, you are before. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, that we, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. It's almost as if Paul is trying to overwhelm us. Like purposefully. Just overwhelm us with what God has done for us spiritually. I mean, I can't wrap my mind around everything he said there. I mean, I've spent, you can spend as much time as you want. But just the very first phrase has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We can't even acquire a single spiritual blessing on our own. We're not capable of it. We took the image that he had given us and we soiled it. And we separated ourselves from him. There's not a single spiritual blessing we can get for ourselves. And yet, He has given us every blessing that exists. That's what the word every means, right? Every spiritual blessing. There's not one He left out. And then it goes on and on. That's who God is. And I think it would be good for us to spend time being still, being weak before Him spiritually, and and recognizing that He had the power and the love to do that for us. And it will help us with our perspective, I think, in knowing who He is and who we are. There's one more passage I want to read in 1 Corinthians 15. So Isaiah was sort of being still and knowing how big God is, right? And Ephesians is being still and knowing how much work God has done 
for you. Not a, and I don't mean you as a group, you, you people. I mean you individually, each one of you. God has done that work for you. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, I think we can be still and know about God's promises and think about God's promises and meditate on His promises and the fact that He never fails a promise. He's never failed a promise and He won't. Beginning in verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed, its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. First man was of the earth, made of dust. Second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are promises in there that we have no hope of approaching without God. Absolutely no hope of approaching anything like that. The promises He's made to us. Sometimes it would be good for us to be still 
and think about what He has in store for us. Not just what He's done for us in the past, both. What He's done, the work He's done, the work He's accomplished through Jesus, and the result of that work, the promises that He's made to us. And help us to keep our perspective between ourselves and Him and ourselves and the rest of this world. Because He is God. We are not, and no one else is. And He has made these promises. No one else has. But these promises and these blessings and things are only in His Son, as we read in Ephesians. Everything He wanted to accomplish and bring about was accomplished in His Son. And if we are not faithfully walking in His Son, none of these things, none of these things are for us. But what is for us is in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we're in that state, my encouragement to you is not to be still. You need to be in turmoil. Lots of turmoil. You need to be distraught. But if you're walking faithfully with Him, all of these promises and things should help us walk through this life more confident not in ourselves, but confident in Him. Because He's helping us. He's our refuge. And He's the one who's made promises for us. If anyone needs help from this group, just in Bible study, talking it out, in any way, to either get into this kind of relationship with Him, restore this relationship with Him, or just help in knowing that He's God. I think we all would benefit from that kind of conversation. But Josh is going to sing a song for us now to help us think about that and remind us. And if anyone wants help this morning or this afternoon, now would be the time uh, to let us know.